Hello, and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the stage and screen podcast, episode 29, coming to you virtually from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Greg Heilman. And I'm Matt Haver. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week, we bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts from L.A. to the U.K., Back in March, Tracy Gossel, founder of the Film Preservation Society, joined us for episode 19, and we enjoyed the conversation so much, we invited her back to talk about another of her favorite topics and the subject of her book, The First King of Hollywood, Douglas Fairbanks. Without Fairbanks, Hollywood and the film industry simply wouldn't exist in its present form, and we're excited for Tracy to join us here in just a few minutes. Another filmmaker who changed the face of cinema forever was Orson Welles, and Welles' first full-length film was, in fact, a 1938 silent picture called Too Much Johnson, shot just three years before his masterpiece, Citizen Kane, in 1941. Citizen Kane premiered 80 years ago and is considered one of the best films ever, but that wasn't the only important thing to happen that year in movie history. On May 29, 1941, our beloved Roxy Theater opened its doors in Bremerton, Washington. And in honor of their 80th birthday, the Roxy will kick off their year-long celebration with a showing of Citizen Kane on Saturday, May 29th, and we're proud to have been asked to emcee the event. And not only that, we'll be joined virtually by our friend, TCM guest host, film historian, and author Jeremy Arnold, who will introduce the film and give context and commentary on Wells' masterwork. Tickets are just $11, and we'll hit the stage at 6.30, or you can come early and enjoy the Roxy's pop-up wine bar beginning at 2 p.m. There will be opportunities to win prizes for knowing your movie trivia, and anyone born in 1941 gets in free. Uh, visit roxybremerton.org forward slash showtimes to purchase tickets and mark your calendars for the first installment of Movies of the Decade, Citizen Kane, starring Orson Welles, Saturday, May 29th, with TCM's Jeremy Arnold and us, Howman and Haver. Links are in the show notes, and we hope to see you there. Well, one could argue that without Douglas Fairbanks, there would have been no Citizen Kane. Without Fairbanks, there would be no Beverly Hills or United Artists. And surely without Fairbanks, our guest Tracy Gossel might have never left her work as a physician and entrepreneur to pursue her true passion, silent film history. Tracy founded the nonprofit Film Preservation Society, FPS, in 2014, which has recovered and restored several silent films formerly thought to be lost or unavailable for viewing, including Douglas Fairbanks' Mr. Fix-It, The Good Bad Man, and The Half-Breed. The Film Preservation Society funded the software that enables the Library of Congress to scan original paper prints of silent films from the first decade of the 1900s, and currently the goal is to restore all 485 D.W. Griffith biograph films that were made between 1908 and 1913. Tracy's published numerous articles on silent film history, has lectured widely on Douglas Fairbanks, and is a major collector of silent film ephemera, including Fairbanks' love letters to Mary Pickford. In 2015, Tracy published our topic for today's show, The First King of Hollywood, The Life of Douglas Fairbanks, dubbed by the New York Times, quote, a buoyant handspring of a book, one of the most delightful Hollywood biographies to slide down the mast in years. The book was released as a paperback in 2018, and our guest from episode 27, award-winning biographer Scott Eyman, called it, quote, impeccably researched and elegantly written, and, quote, not merely a worthy read, a necessary book. Ed Tracy joins us from her home in L.A. Tracy, welcome back. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me again. I'm so glad to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. So, Tracy, you served on the board of directors of the San Francisco Silent Film Festival. You founded the Film Preservation Society. You're married to Robert Bader, our guest on episode 26, who is responsible for the archives of some of the biggest stars in Hollywood. Don't hold that against me. You've said... <laughs> <laughs> we'll try not to. 
Uh, you've seen just a few films over the years. And we all have our favorite actors. And it's one thing to be drawn to a specific entertainer. It's quite another to dedicate as much time as you have. Eight years and nearly 500 pages in your book to one particular person. So what was it about Douglas Fairbanks that drew you to him as a subject of a serious biography project? Well, it wasn't because he was an actor. Honestly, for the most part, actors in and of themselves as actors don't interest me. And Doug would be the first person to tell you he was not a great actor, but he was a phenomenal personality. He was a tremendous athlete who did virtually all of his own stunts. There were a few exceptions. He was a producer, a careful and thoughtful and intelligent producer. And he was a business leader in the industry. And, um, you know, beyond that had a, a massive cultural effect that most of people don't even recognize today. Doug Fairbanks is all around us. And people who've never heard his name are seeing his influence, but but don't, don't recognize the roots. So when we see Batman or Superman, you know, that hero standing with the legs askance and the knuckles on their hips, both were based on Douglas Fairbanks by the, the young uh, creators who created them. When we enjoy a film in Technicolor, it's because Doug Fairbanks in 1926 saved the Technicolor Corporation from going belly up by making the first major um, Hollywood full-length Technicolor film, uh, The Black Pirate. When we watch the Academy Awards once a year, which I feels like nobody does anymore, but that's another story. That's because Doug co-founded the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and he founded the very first film school in uh, this country at USC, and he was one of the co-founders of United Artists. So he not only was a producer, but he became a distributor and put that power and money into the hands of the creative people, as opposed to the corporations where, for the most part, it exists now uh, and where it existed throughout the years of the studio system. He provided an alternative to the studio system. So films that came out of United Artists, even movies like Kill a Mockingbird, I think was the UA, films that otherwise would a studio would not have made found distribution because of uh, this man's tremendous popularity 100 years ago. And of course, just the fact that he really was a wonderful creative entity and did his own stunts and designed them and was this funny, charming, loopy, affable action hero. It, it just, it all made him far more irresistible. And it was way more than eight years of my life, believe it or not. It was eight years of, okay, I'm, I'm going to write this book, um, spend at archives and primary source research. But for, I'd say about 40 years before that, I, I've been reading and collecting and studying silent films and in particular Doug Fairbanks. So given that he's such a he was such a pioneer and he was a businessman and I mean he was in all aspects of the business, what do you think he would think of Hollywood today? Given <laughs> what it's become? I don't know. I think he would have been very discouraged by Hollywood in the 70s. 
when most of the great directors who got their roots in silent films uh, had died off or lost their jobs or their ability. But then I think when the young filmmakers that are now our grand old lions, the Scorseses and the Spielbergs and the, um, the Francis Ford Coppola's, those youngsters that came up and again were, had this independent creative vision and somehow managed to make it work within the large mechanism of Hollywood, I think he would have been very encouraged. This was somebody who always was chasing that next new technology. He was doing research on 3D uh, back in the 20s. He was, again, embraced Technicolor before anybody else did. He knew sound was coming. It just came at a very bad time in his personal life. And when he just didn't care anymore, but he, he was never afraid of the new. He was always willing to embrace the new and sort of stand on the shoulders of the people behind him and do the next thing even bigger and better. And he was responsible for the idea that filmmakers didn't have to be a factory cranking out one film a week that in fact you could spend more time and money and put it into one really good film and be confident that it would last in a theater for 12 weeks. And we say that now, it's like 12 weeks. It, it would be the same as if you had the TV, same TV show on every night for 12 weeks. It was in these towns where this was the only media, you know, typically the turnover in movies was a twice a week or later uh, once a week. But the films that Doug Fairbanks and Mary Pickford produced were so popular and had such production values that in fact, a film like Robin Hood stayed at it, the Egyptian theater here in town for six months. So much so that the trolley car conductor would, when we came to that stop, would say all out for Robin Hood, not all out for <laughs> Hollywood and Highland. Because it just, people kept coming and they'd come multiple times. And it was just, there was so much to see and it was so wonderful. He gambled and bet that putting more money and more care into a film that the audience would recognize and reward that. And in fact, both models work. You know, the studio model, you need to kind of keep filling the seats and cranking it out, uh, kind of a, a lesser film every week works. And then they would, in the studios, occasionally make something big and special like The Wizard of Oz. But for the most part, they were just cranking them out. And, and it was uh, Doug and Mary that shifted the industry towards doing something bigger and better and more special. By the way, we owe Doug indirectly for when we see The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind, because they were directed by Victor Fleming, who was a bicycle repairman. And then Doug's cameraman and Doug gave him a shot at directing. He loved to give fresh young talent opportunities. And a lot of Hollywood directors that are very big and very important today, like William Wellman, that was a Fairbanks discovery. He brought him to Hollywood because he played hockey and he liked him. Well, it's incredible. Like you mentioned in your book, as influential as Fairbanks was, that you don't hear more about him. His name isn't all over 
the town where, where you're at right now, Los Angeles. The one thing you do hear, though, is that when you hear Fairbanks, you hear Mary Pickford also. Those, those two names just go together. And what I found fascinating about your story is that a lot of this got rolling based on your purchase, uh, acquisition of their love, love letters. letters. Yes, there's a story. <laughs> yeah, and, and that much of your book is, is based on the discoveries that you made. What I'm curious about is, first of all, how'd you end up with the letters? And what new things did you discover about Doug and Mary by reading these? Maybe things that, that other biographers hadn't. Well, and in fact, I would never have had the cojones to think I could write a biography on Douglas Fairbanks, although I was, you know, obviously a big fan and a collector until I acquired the love letters. Then I said, well, golly, this in a sense is a competitive advantage that people have never read these or know the content of these. But what was astonishing to me was then I went in and dove in and said, okay, if I'm going to be a biographer, I have to be responsible and um, not take what people have written in other books and just cut and paste. Instead, I insisted that I do only primary source research. So if I'm talking about his era at uh, the Triangle Film Studios, which is where he started, I am literally going through the microfilm at the University of Wisconsin, uh, Wisconsin State Historical Society, that had the day-to-day charge books um, triangle. And so you can see, oh my gosh, well, he showed up for his you know, first day of filming and his luggage was you know, 150 pounds over because Doug's <laughs> luggage was always 150 pounds over. This guy traveled with more suitcases than you could imagine. But you, you found that so much of the narrative he had woven in his life and that biographer simply just you know, cut and paste and stamped and quoted, in fact, wasn't true. He constructed his image very intentionally uh, to hide the fact that his father was Jewish, uh, which we go today, go, so what? You know, what, there's nothing wrong with that. Who cares? But in 1908, the only lower person in social status than a person who was Jewish was a person of color. Uh, it, it was a dreadfully segregated society. And Fairbanks, not to his credit, but understandably, given uh, how he was raised in the era, was embarrassed that his father was Jewish. And he hid that as far as the world was concerned. His father was John Fairbanks, who was his mother's first husband. Ullman, uh, his real father, was mom's third husband. And by the way, there may have been some bigamy in there. And in the case of Mr. Ullman, it might even have been some trigamy. He had three families running at one point which again, wasn't, wasn't well known. So I ended up with a lot more truths in the book than simply those that I found going through the love letters. But the love letters themselves were incredibly informative. For example, in 1916, when Doug and Mary knew each other, but each were married to others, and they were falling in love, but they hadn't declared it. They, you know, they're just all meeting socially. And clearly there's this great attraction. Mary Pickford was having an affair with some other man. Her marriage to Owen Moore had been dismantled and dreadful for years. Uh, he was an abusive, angry alcoholic. And she was seeking solace elsewhere. 
And amongst all of these love letters from Doug, she kept one letter written in early 1917 from a man referencing, he doesn't know yet that he's about to be given the old heave ho, um, referencing their grand passion and that he hasn't seen her and the memories of what they were doing you know, at the Algonquin in 1916. I cannot tell you who this man is and neither can any of the other highly prestigious film scholars I've shown the letters to because he signs it, you're a lonely man and none of us can place the handwriting. We can rule out people. It wasn't this guy, it wasn't this guy, it wasn't this guy. And we can suggest that it was somebody who was working at Famous Players in 1915, 1916, because he's talking studio gossip and he wants to direct or work in two real comedies. But it's not Doug. And hmm. uh, it's not James Kirkwood with whom she'd had a relationship a few years earlier. So there was someone else in Mary's life. And she kept that letter to her death and beyond. All the love letters, of course, overwhelmingly from Doug, came in an auction after Buddy Rogers' last wife died. Buddy Rogers was Mary Pickford's last husband. He remarries after she's gone. He dies. And then finally, the widow dies. And a lot of the items after Mary's death that he had kept and put into sort of a littler version of Pickfair on the same property, all came up for auction. And there was this little cardboard box that had a typed label on it, Miss Pickford, personal and private. And in that box were all of these love letters, including a few notes to her mother, a few notes from her niece when her niece was a little girl and mostly just letter after letter after letter from Doug. And it went up for auction, I think it was about 2005, 2006. And I was post-op from a spinal fusion. I had my neck fused and I was in this hard collar. And let's just say I was heavily medicated, <laughs> very heavily medicated. And so uh, the estimate was very modest, but in fact, every dealer in autograph dealer in town was going for them because they wanted love letters from Doug to Mary. My God, you could yeah. split those up and sell them and make a huge profit. Uh, and I was bound and determined that ultimately they belonged in an archive. And as I said, I was heavily medicated. So, you know, <laughs> the bidding was over the telephone and it just kept going up and up and up. And you know, you're sitting there saying, kids, you don't, need to go to Harvard, do you? You can get community college will be perfectly fine. And by the end, it's like, you guys can join the Marines. For yeah. Was Robert over at Dick Cavett's place that evening or what? <laughs> yeah, this was before I ever met Robert. This was in my first marriage and um, my kids were, you know, still in high school. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it, I, I bought them. I've never regretted it. And ultimately, the Herrick Library, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, which has both the Pickford and Fairbanks papers, is going to get them. And it's probably why they periodically check on my health. <laughs> <laughs> How you doing? Is that a cough? Feeling okay? But uh, yeah, they're, they're earmarked for them, but it, they're 
just about my most prized possession. And the book is uh, quotes them very, very liberally, but you, you couldn't write, quote them all verbatim because it's an awful lot of, you know, I love you, I adore you, you're wonderful. The sort of letters women would love to get. Well, on the opposite end of the spectrum, we, you mentioned earlier, and we and talking about the transition into talkies. And, you know, so Fairbanks made his mark in, and we predominantly know him for his silent films, but his career was still, you know, in a decent place professionally when talkies started to, to come about. And, and Doug, like you said, knew it was coming all prior to the release of The Jazz Singer, which is kind of, you know, known as the weather bell or whatever for, for when we transitioned to, to talkies. Not truly the knockout punch, but everybody thinks of it as the yeah. single that, that killed uh, silent films. And it was just, it was sort of the, a last great punch in a series of chin blows um, that had been coming down the pike. And while he was not opposed to new technology, again, you mentioned 3D and color. Co- color yeah, and things he undertook in the 1920s. But the transition wasn't easy for him. Um, and in fact, the, the 2011 film, The Artist, I think we talked about the last time you were on the show, he was the, he was the you know, the uh, influence on the protagonist in that film, which is still one of my favorite films. And, and in fact, they reproduced his costume from The Iron Mask in a fencing scene in The Artist where they say, oh, stop filming, come into the office. There's this new thing coming, these talking films. And it, in the, the artist, the Jean Du, no, not Jean Du Jean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's it. Uh, you know, laughs and says, ha ha, they'll never last. But in reality, Fairbanks was quick to embrace a new technology. The problem was twofold. The first, oh, five to seven years of sound films, they're pretty clunky. They're not really starting to catch on and figure it out until 1934. And so if you're like one of the number one stars in the world, that's a long period of time between 1928 and 1934, Uh, especially if you are an action hero based on youth. Second, his personal life, just everything went bad the great love with Mary Pickford, they, uh, due to actually a a horrible misunderstanding, each lost faith in the other, uh, each thought the other had been unfaithful then because each thought the other had been unfaithful, each one in turn actually became unfaithful. And once that happened, it was, it was just awful. So he lost his underpinning, this one great thing that made him want to live And so when sound came, he had already done it all. And he, you know, he gave it some tries, but he just didn't care. And by the time sound films were finally getting technically good, which again, it's fair to say around 1934, they're putting music under, you know, think of around the time King Kong is coming in, you know, they're they're starting to score action appropriately, uh, not just have lots of clunks and thunks as you know our hero does what he does it's um that's his last year making a film and uh, it's the time of his divorce and he just his heart was broken and he didn't he just didn't care so at least in the artist they gave him a happy ending he discovered musicals you know he could dance too. <laughs> um but doug was everything but a musical theater star <laughs> 
<laughs> and uh, he, there was no happy ending for him. It really was a rise and fall, a very tragic, tragic uh, tale. You wish he could have had that grand second or third act, but he didn't. And, you know, it's, it's one of life's tragedies. You wish you could get in a time machine. And as I always say, yes, I know first you've got to go kill baby Hitler. But after you've killed baby Hitler, you want to go in and, and somehow fix Doug and Mary. Yeah, I, I think it was it was really symbolic at the end of was the Iron Mask, right? When that's the one, yeah. you know, when his character dies, which is the last silent film. It was just it was really kind of um, heart wrenching in a way, because, you know, no, looking back in history and knowing what's to come after that, it was really, uh, you know, kind of rough to watch. Every time somebody does a documentary about the transition uh, from silent films to sound, they always have three clips. They've got Al Jolson in The Jazz Singer saying, you ain't saying nothing yet, Ma. And they have Greta Garbo saying, give me a whiskey. And then they have Doug Fairbanks in The Iron Mask dying and being stabbed in the back and, and going up off to heaven and their greater adventures beyond. And uh, Kevin Brownlow's documentary ends with that. Um, multiple documentaries on that subject give us that clip. And there's no more evocative demonstration of the end of a great era. And there just has never been in the history of mankind an art form that is created out of whole cloth, didn't exist, rises to this magnificent peak. And then while it's at a peak, as high as it, as it may have gone higher, we'll never know. It, it's killed and it's gone and gone, uh, except for those of us who work to save the films, it's gone forever. And instead of being popular entertainment, now it's viewed as, oh, only the, you know, the intellectuals go watch silent films. No, it's, it was as popular in 1925 to see a silent movie as it is to read a Harry Potter book in 19, or, you know, in 2005. They were the peak of popular entertainment and they were meant to give people joy or to evoke emotions in people. And I argue a silent film does that better than a talking film for the most part the most effective talking films have long prolonged periods of silence in them or of nonverbal noise think of the first 20 minutes of saving private orion yeah we talked about a little bit about that before some of the pixar films i think it was up um first 20 minutes of up um yeah or the movie wally is 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 yeah those you know, are silent films yeah and and i can see you can see great silent film directors continuing to communicate via that medium, even in talking films. On TCM uh, the other night or the other week, they had a King Vitor 1941 film called H.M. Pullum Esquire. Never heard of it? No, I hadn't either. Robert Young and Hedy Lamar, MGM. And the first five, 10 minutes of the film we learn everything we need to know about this middle-aged man and his life, what it's like now. And there's just not a word spoken, uh, meaningful dialogue. I mean, we just, we see that he's persnickety, that his life is well-ordered, that, you know, he, when the clock's striking eight, he's tapping his egg and, you know, getting the shell off. This guy 
is leading a regulated, well-ordered Bostonian, uh, but sterile life. And he didn't need to have anybody say, gee, Henry H.M. Pullum Esquire, you're leading a dull and organized and sterile life. (laughs) What kind of life is this? (laughs) Yeah, he gave it to us all visually. And that's a great, great gift the best directors know how to do. And the nice thing is you have to watch these films. And I, I noted that in one of my Facebook posts the other night when I was watching some of these silent films is that you can't sit there with your phone in one hand and try to absorb it from a screen. You have to watch. They demand your full attention or you are going to miss something. And especially with Doug, because we think of Fairbanks as doing these grand gestures. But the truth is he was the king of the micro gestures. He would do all these funny little things in a quick flash. And if you weren't watching, you would miss it. Um, You know, and forgive me if I've, said any of these in the past because I talk silent films so often to people I'm sure I repeat myself he's hired an assassin to kill him and uh, since he hired the assassin to kill him his whole life has turned around and everything's wonderful he doesn't want to be killed anymore but uh, you know the guy is out there going to plug him now of course he doesn't know that since in the meanwhile this guy has been converted by the Salvation Army and isn't going to kill him at all and he rushes into the police station, frantic, trying to get a policeman to understand what's, what he's done and how he, he needs their help. And he just grabs the, the pot of ink off the sergeant's desk and drinks it, you know, while he's waiting for somebody to pay attention to him. If you're not looking, you, you will miss that. You will miss him, you know, punch a hole with a hole punch in the girl's hair ribbon or you know, try and kiss her hand and she pulls her hand away and he's kissing the table. Um, They're just a thousand little things he does that are so visually witty. And if you're not watching, you're going to miss it. And in silent films, that applies to dramas as well. If, If ever you've seen a film called The Big Parade, of course, everybody knows that there's a battle sequence in the Bellow Woods and that the soldiers and the cuts and the editing are all in time to a metronome. The doo, 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 doo. Um, and that's famous and well-known, but there's a scene where John Gilbert's two buddies who we've seen throughout the whole movie, you know, we've had, we've had this relationship with his, him and his buddies. His two buddies have been killed by a sniper. And now he has fired into or thrown a grenade. I can't remember into the, foxhole where the sniper was and he himself has dived headfirst into the foxhole and now he is in that foxhole with the dying German soldier who killed his two best friends but who is himself dying and you know the the guy asks him for a cigarette and he gives him a cigarette and he it's this mixture of compassion and anger you know at one point he he gives him the cigarette but then he pushes his face away if your eyes are not glued to that screen in that foxhole scene, you're going to miss one of a thousand emotions that are just happening all at the same time. And the fact of the matter is, is that silent films are processed in a different part of our brain. The image plus music then is image plus words or music plus words. We just process it differently and it, it truly draws us in, which was why the jazz singer was so dreadful, not because of the sound portions, 
But because every time the sound ended and we were back to the silent movie, it was just a jolt. We had been shocked out of that wonderful hypnotic state and you can't go back into it so quickly. So um, yes, you're right. Silent films demand our full attention. Our guest today is Tracy Gossel, and when we come back, we'll learn more about the influence Douglas Fairbanks had as a director, actor, producer, and man on the golden age of Hollywood. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back right here on Heilman and Haver. Welcome back to Heilman and Haver. Today is May 21st, and on this day in 1980, Star Wars Episode V, The Empire Strikes Back, arguably the best in the franchise, according to some people, produced by George Lucas, opened in cinemas in the UK and North America. In order to avoid sharing creative rights, George Lucas didn't use a major studio to fund the film. Instead, he bankrolled the $18 million production himself, using a combination of his profits from Star Wars Episode for A New Hope in 1977 and a bank loan. Although the move was risky, it paid off several times over. Lucas recovered his investment within three months of the movie's release. He then showed gratitude far beyond the Hollywood norm by sharing the profits with his employees, nearly $5 million in bonuses. Empire won an Oscar for Best Sound, along with 24 other awards and 20 further nominations. And if you're a filmmaker looking for your first win, make sure to check out the 2021 West Sound Film Festival taking place August 5th through 8th. Submissions are open now and will be accepted through the end of June. For more information and to submit your project, visit westsoundfilmfestival.com and stay tuned right here for festival news and interviews. And thanks to onthisday.com and the Internet Movie Database at imdb.com for the trivia. Our guest today is author of the biography The First King of Hollywood, The Life of Douglas Fairbanks, founder of the Film Preservation Society, and an expert on the silent film era, Tracy Gossel. Several things that you just mentioned remind me of Cary Grant. And mm-hmm. last week, we had the pleasure of, of speaking, thanks to you and Robert, uh, speaking with Scott Eyman uh, about his new book, that Cary Grant, A Brilliant Disguise. And I actually started reading a book on grace, the art of grace in one's life, uh, after reading Eyman's book. And everything is about Grant. And his, like you said, these micro-expressions, the shrug of a shoulder. He was so athletic and in so many ways um, was the epitome of what a male a leading actor uh, could be for his time period. Something we asked uh, Scott about was the interaction that uh, Grant had back when he was Archie Leach on the Olympian coming over uh, on the boat along with Pickford and Fairbanks and how he was so impressed and they got a photo together. And he obviously idolized Fairbanks, patterned his dress after, his manner after him for the rest of his yeah. life. You talk a lot of, in your book about the many influences like United Artists we see today in Hollywood that, that he's had, of course. But what about other actors from the golden age or today that you see his influence in? Is there a modern day equivalent of Doug? There is not. Um, there are lots of people who try and they capture one element or another of this great diamond with multiple facets. But, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger doesn't have that loopy wit that maybe a Chris Pratt will have, but Chris Pratt doesn't do stunts like, you know, keep going. You know, Errol Flynn was a studio produced property um, that was sort of the next generation's swashbuckler. But nobody was quite like Doug. And I'll give you an example of three disparate Hollywood uh, stars who worshipped him. And you're just going to say, wow, this is a pretty broad spectrum. John Wayne, 
In Scott Iman's wonderful John Wayne biography, we'll talk about him tearing down a grape arbor, trying to imitate Doug Fairbanks jumping out the window as an eight-year-old. And Fred Astaire, who would wear a tie around his waist instead of a belt because Doug Fairbanks did that. Fred Astaire stood on the stage at the Palace Theater in 1912 in the wings because he and his sister overlapped by, you know, one day, one performance with Doug Fairbanks, who was doing a tabloid show, a little vaudeville cut down of a, of a uh, larger theatrical show in the palace in 1912. And he just talks about the thrill of his life. And this was before he was in the movies. And I'm saying before Doug Fairbanks was in the movies, the idea of being able to see Douglas Fairbanks on the stage in person up close because Fairbanks did all this athletic stuff on stage as well. And then, as you mentioned, Cary Grant. So you have this mix because I no long, I just can't think of John Wayne looking comfortable in white tie any more than I can picture Fred Astaire on a horse, right. you know, being a <laughs> cowboy. Uh, Cary Grant, because of his athleticism, uh, was the closest to doing both. But guess what? He mostly played the urbane white tie man, occasionally a cockney, but for the most part, he also was in the Fred Astaire elegant class. And Fairbanks straddled both those worlds. He did as many Westerns um, and action adventure films as he did modern dress comedies and looked equally good in that white tie or in the chaps. And if he was on a horse, and he's jumping off the horse, that's him jumping off the horse. And if he's lassoing somebody, that's him with a lasso. He had an incredible skill set that he improved sort of with every new film that required, you know, now I'm going to learn to use the bola. Now I'm going to learn to use a whip. He, he really was tremendously admired by actors or personalities of true accomplishment. They saw in him an ideal, a beau ideal that they wanted to pursue. And so, yes, Cary Grant got his suits bespoke and uh, Savile Row, as did, by the way, Gary Cooper. I can't say where John Wayne got his suits, but uh, John Wayne was certainly inclined uh, as a big, tough football player to give the movies a shot because somebody as masculine and secure uh, as... Doug Fairbanks was in the movies. So that was okay for somebody like John Wayne then to say, okay, I'll change my name from Marion Morrison and become John Wayne and go into the movies. And, you know, the, the tremendous athleticism of a Fred Astaire who danced, Doug didn't dance, Doug didn't sing, but Doug's actions and movements were akin to dance, just running up a flight of stairs, leaping over a table, they would saw those table legs so that he could have jumped higher, but they sawed them to a height that his leap across that table was like he was floating on air. Ditto running up a flight of stairs. They would make the, the height of the, however you define height on stairs, in such a way that he could run up three steps at a time, but do it gracefully. Everything, uh, every handhold, were, they were all very carefully designed, not so that he could do the stunt for the most part, but so that he could look supernaturally graceful doing the stunt. And that's what a stair does in dance. 
And that's what Cary Grant does anytime he shrugs his shoulders. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh my God, Cary Grant. I, I just, I don't know when I die and go to heaven if God is going to look like Gary Cooper or Cary Grant. Got to be at least that handsome. If you're going to make a human being that exquisite, by gosh, uh, you as the Lord Almighty must be at least that good. <laughs> or, or she, maybe, maybe he, she looks like Ava Gardner. I don't know. There we go. <laughs> well, you, yeah. So it, when he does his stunts, he looks almost like he's floating. I mean, that gracefulness. And and in your book, you quote Mary Astor, um, his co-star in in Don Q, son of Zorro, saying that he did almost all of his own stunts except, and you mentioned this earlier a few exceptions where the risk uh, of injury uh, might delay, end up delaying the picture because he was also a producer. Right. So how did he, how did he navigate that balance between Douglas Fairbanks producer and Douglas Fair, Fairbanks star? And did that change as his career went on as he got older? Not really. What happened was this, he would agree with uh, his brothers, John and Robert. Okay. For example, take Robin Hood. There's a scene where he climbs up the chain and the drawbridge. Drawbridge drops down. He climbs up the chain and goes all the way up to the top and then stands up there and goes, ha ha. And he's perfectly capable of doing it. This is Douglas Fairbanks, for God's sake. And his brother said, look, it's just this is this multi-million dollar production. This is more than we've ever spent on a movie. It's more than anybody's ever spent on a movie. Let's get the stuntman in. And Doug was uh, growled and did it himself a couple times just to prove he could. And then the stuntman did some tests and, okay, now it's time to do the actual stunt. And Doug said, well, I'm going off to you know, work out in the gym. Then out comes the stuntman very quickly, does the stunt, and he gets up to the top and does this gesture, and it's absolutely clearly Douglas Fairbanks. And the brother's going, oh, God, he stunted for the stuntman. He just couldn't bear the idea of not doing that stunt himself because he didn't want to cheat the audience. But my favorite stunt example is the one Mary Astor provided where they said, we're just going to have the stuntman jump from this uh, tall wall and land on the horse and then ride away. And it's sort of a shot from the back and nobody will care who does it or who doesn't do it. And again, you know, Doug's the star, we don't want to wreck it. And the stuntman just couldn't quite get it right. And Doug, in his everyday clothes, he's not in costume, says, here, Henry, let me show you. I do it like this. And he jumped off the wall and showed him how to do his legs and then rode off. And of course they couldn't use it. He was in, he was <laughs> three clothes, but, and the stuntman then learned and did it right. But for the most part, he would do the stunts. He would design them for a number of films with Richard Talmadge, who then went on to become a very famous stuntman who, who made some action films, but for the most part, he would be subbed out only if he had broken a bone. And the best example of that is in the Molly Cobble. There's a scene where he jumps from a cliff to a very tall tree at the top of the tree and then kind of falls down through the branches. That jump and that fall turned out to have to be Richard Talmadge because Fairbanks had broken his hand earlier that day. I mean, he just couldn't do the stunt. And they needed to get the film in on time. But, oh, my God, he broke bones. 
he broke bones. I can imagine you talk to any of these stuntmen and, and the amount of bones that they've yeah. broken and or Jackie Chan. Oh my yeah. God, that yeah. man. But he always shows at the end of his films, he shows himself getting hurt and Fairbanks never showed that you just, uh, it had to look absolutely, you know, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. <laughs> it had to be effortless with Doug. Yeah, larger than life. Yeah. Well, now that we've talked about all these great scenes and all these great films, my question is, where do we find them? Part of your work with the Film Preservation Society has been to restore many of his films. Uh, Mr. Fix-It, The Good Bad Man. You guys just released the refurbished negative of The Three Musketeers with the correct... It's, it's not released yet, but it's... Oh, it's on its way. Yeah, we... Everybody uh, up till now, the only way you could see the Three Musketeers was in a beat up 16 millimeter print that uh, had been put out with a very good score and people did their best, but they couldn't get to the source material. The Museum of Modern Art, God bless them, they uh, gave us access to the camera negative that in conjunction with San Francisco Silent Film Festival and Rob Byrne of San Francisco Silent Film Festival, we, Festival. We had helped funded in 2017 a restoration of that film from Doug's camera negative. Well, subsequently, additional footage came to light. We already had this footage, but this was um, there were portions of the Three Musketeers that had color sequences, and they weren't just tinted colors like most silent films were tinted. Uh, it was a procedure called the Hanschlegel procedure. It was a kind of a stenciling template where each frame had its own stencil and it mechanically would color a portion of the film. In this case, D'Artagnan's Buttercup Yellow Horse. So MoMA funded uh, with the lab the restoration of that footage. Uh, we funded a further restoration on the film and the returning of the tints to the original tints because then the 2017 restoration, we didn't know what the tints were. Rob Byrne had to guess based on handwritten notes. Uh, somebody at MoMA had done in the 50s before the, the uh, nitrate or before the positive print had deteriorated. Um, but this material that the George Eastman Museum had had the original tints. So we restored the tints uh, we did a little additional cleanup. We put in the horse and MoMA is going to be letting us release it. We funded a, a fantastic score from um, Montalto Orchestra, a five-piece symphony. You know, it, it, they just do wonderful, wonderful work. So soon the Three Musketeers will be coming out on Blu-ray from Doug's camera negative in just this gorgeous, pristine print with a great score. Also, yes, we will soon be releasing Mr. Fix-It and The Good um, Double Trouble. Kino has released our restorations and San Francisco Silent Film Festival restorations, they were joint, of The Good Bad Man and The Half-Breed, which are both wonderful early Fairbanks films. And we're just going to keep trying to find lost ones. Mr. Fix-It was lost for many years. George Eastman Museum was very gracious and, and let us get a scan of their material. We, about 10 years ago, had funded the translation of the titles to English and because it was found in Italy with Italian intertitles. 
but there are just these marvelous Fairbanks comedies, even the pre-swashbucklers that will be released and that people can see. And by the way, if you buy the Blu-ray from us, you're giving money to film preservation. And I have to tell you, there are jerks out there who strip the Blu-rays and post them for free on YouTube. And we get them taken down, but not before usually, you know, 50 to 100 people have seen them. And, you know, I'm glad people can see a movie, but, you know, don't, don't rob the people who invested thousands in preserving them, because then we can't preserve the next one and then the one after that. Are there a significant number of his films that, that are yet to be discovered that we know of that are just buried someplace? Well, no, they're not buried. It's a grievously high number. Um, just about everything he made in 1919, for example. What happened was he donated all of his camera negatives, all of his films to the Museum of Modern Art in 1939. Fairbanks Jr. and Raymond Rohauer had a lawsuit with MoMA in the early 50s over ownership of the Iron Mask. They wanted to reissue it and re-edit it, which they ultimately did. And because this was all in litigation, MoMA said, well, we're not going to invest any money in preserving or saving these things because it's, you know, it's disputed ownership, et cetera. So a very great number of them were not transferred to safety stock and turned to dust. So some have been found. The ones that have been found, we have, you know, assembled bits from wherever they could be and tried to put out the best version we possibly can. But there are many, many titles, uh, Bound in Morocco, Say Young Fellow, far too many titles that were allowed to turn to dust. And when he had turned them over to a museum expecting uh, them to be taken care of, and do not, this is not to reflect on MoMA today. Uh, MoMA today is staffed by you know, brilliant, dedicated people who are very invested in preservation and are underpaid and overworked and doing their damnedest. And they're working with us on the Biograph Project, and we just can't thank them enough for their cooperation. But, you know, MoMA in 1950, none of those people were born, and people were making other decisions. And we're all generationally now paying the price. We'll never get to see some of this stuff. When the Three Musketeers comes out on Blu-ray, I'm going to go ahead and purchase that. And one one reason is, other than other than donating to Film Preservation Society, in my search to watch a bunch of silent films, there are so many that are out there of, I don't know, it's it's a crapshoot with the a the visual quality, quality, yeah, and then the soundtracks that okay. people put over them. I think it was watching Robin. I think it was a Robin hood version that had like a synthesizer kind of soundtrack. And it was better to watch it without the sound off. So and, and don't get me started on God bless the Pickford foundation, but they're convinced that rock and roll is <laughs> the way to get the kids interested in silence. So these scores and everybody keeps writing and going, this is terrible, but there's that one person out of 50 who goes, this is great. And that's the person that they point to. Actually, it was a bunch of ragtime piano pieces. This was on, on Amazon. And I'm watching Marion get tortured to, to, to the entertainer. 
the fact is Robin Hood exists out there with its, remember it had a score written for it, composed specifically for the film. And the Kino version, if it can, if you can still obtain it, I don't know if it's available, has that score. Now it's quite brightly tinted. It's it's very green um, in the green exteriors, the wood shots, probably brighter than anybody ever tinted a film in 1922 or 23. But the score is historically accurate on the Kino release. And yeah, insensitive uh, scoring is one of the worst things you can possibly do. We're so lucky. Um, Not only did we have the Montalto Orchestra to do Three Musketeers, but we've got Donald Sosin handling a lot of our Matter of fact, he's handling all of the biographs so that there'll be a uniformity of musical style and selections and even uh, possibly life motif across movies. Um, you know, I'm, I'm of the Max Steiner school. <laughs> and I, you don't have to Mickey Mouse the music, but I want the music to help bring me along. If Betty Davis is going up the stairs and going <laughs> blind and dying in Dark Victory, by God, I want Max Max Steiner making me cry. Uh, And music is so important uh, to silent films. Yeah, we've covered that a lot. Uh, We had a few episodes a few months back that we focused on music um, and the psychology of it and and that. But along the lines of music, that's actually curiosity I have. So when you think of silent films, you think of the film playing the guy playing the piano that's sitting on the floor. When silent films were released, was there a suggested... um, It depends on whether it was a major... Uh, film or not. If it's a major film, it was released on a roadshow basis, meaning tickets were reserved seating. Uh, It came with an orchestra with a score that had been composed for it. And people paid roadshow prices, like theatrical ticket prices. And that roadshows continued all the way up through, I think, Sound of Music was initially roadshow when it came out. For your normal uh, film that was coming out, you know, once a week from a studio, they would release recommended music with it. So, hey, for here, you know, Camp Town Races or something similar works. And then for this part, for the fire, you know, here's play the fire music. And they tell you what kind of music to play for where and where the cues are. Uh, When the captain hits the bell, then start playing chase music and those can be found and exist and there are scholars who collect and report on these but for a Doug Fairbanks film after a certain point it had its own score and these scores survive and you know people some people like them some people don't like them and it's a question of, gee, do you go with the original, you know, Gottstock score? I hope I'm saying his name correctly for the Three Musketeers. Um, most people who know music go, oh, well, you know, that's uh, maybe not the best score. Um, or do you go with an era appropriate score from a silent film musician who knows what he's doing? Probably you can often find multiple sources of a silent film with scores. And there are people who put out web pages where they compare versions of DVDs. So, hey, Birth of a Nation is put out by these guys and these guys and these guys. And, you know, this one's 20 frames longer and this one's got this missing shot and this one's got the original score and this one's 
playing ragtime music when it didn't exist in the Civil War. And you can really pick which one is the most careful, thoughtful restoration and presentation. Well, it's impossible to get 500 pages of content into an hour. So as we close, where's the best place to find your book, uh, The First King of Hollywood? And uh, along those same lines, if our listeners are interested in donating to the Film Preservation Society and the work you guys are doing, uh, how can they best do that? Oh, how lovely. Um, the book is available on Amazon, used copies. I mean, it came out in 2015. So it, the paperback came out a couple of years later, and they may still have the paperback in stock that you can order from Amazon. I honestly haven't looked. Every I check Doug's name every day on eBay looking for glass slides or rare photos, et cetera. And every so often my book pops up. You know, the people will be selling it off inexpensively through Goodwill because Uncle Henry died and this was one of his books, or they're going to charge, you know, $150 for it because it's the hardcover is out of print and this one was autographed. Well, that's silly. If you want my book, you can go to www.filmpreservationsociety.org forward slash shop, or just go to filmpreservationsociety.org. My husband's book is up there. He'll will send you an autographed copy. My book is up there. Our recent release of Harpo Marx's first film, Too Many Kisses with Richard Dixon, William Powell, and the score by Bill Marx, Harpo's son. Gorgeous Blu-ray that includes biograph films. Every single one of our Blu-ray releases is also including some of the D.W. Griffith biograph shorts. Uh, preferably ones that nobody's seen, you know, not not the same 10 that keep going, being released on DVDs. And there is somewhere on that website a donate button. Uh, but I recognize fully that times are hard and that people are in a tough spot after this pandemic. And there's absolutely, uh, we, we you don't have to donate. We'd love it if you did. That would be just great. You'll get a tax letter and all that good stuff, but you don't have to. But do, if you want to see one of our films, uh, do buy the Blu-ray when it comes out instead of ripping it off of uh, YouTube. Please don't steal copyrighted material. It just breaks my heart. Well, especially stuff like this is so rare to begin with. Oh, and it's so expensive to do. It really is. You you do it knowing you're not going to make your money back. You just hope to make some of it back so the next one isn't quite as onerous to fund. Well, Greg and I spend a lot of time on YouTube, so we'll uh, we'll be your, your eyes and ears. We'll keep an eye out for things. <laughs> Won't you please? Yeah. We took down three last week. All right, Greg. We've been, we've been deputized. We'll be the we'll be the hired goons. <laughs> <laughs> we can do that. Thank you. Well, Tracy, this has been a pleasure. It's so interesting, and uh, I'm sure we'll have to have you on again soon. You guys are you and Robert are so busy. We'll uh, we will certainly be in touch. Well, he's more popular than I am. I tell you, the Marx Brothers are still hot, whereas I'm still trying to get silent films back into the public discourse. You wouldn't have one without the other, though. See, that's true. I'm doing my best. So I'm going to try, you know, wherever I can, I'm kind of spread the word. And at a minimum at my house, every Sunday, silent film Sundays from here on out. Good for you. Well, Greg, Matt, thank you so much. I can't thank you enough for your kind attention. And I hope your audience keeps growing and send me a link. I'll plug you on my sundry uh, 
Facebook pages. Uh, so old fashioned. I guess nobody does Facebook anymore. But oh, we're there. Yeah, we're I there. Do. Yeah, we're, we're elderly. What do you expect? <laughs> kids are doing Instagram, and I haven't figured that out yet. Yeah, maybe you could train us on that. We're still trying to learn. Uh, I'm, I'm too old. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell Robert hello, and thank you so much for your time, Tracy. I shall. Thank you so much, and we'll talk soon. Thank you again to our guest, Tracy Gossel. You can find her book, The First King of Hollywood, The Life of Douglas Fairbanks, everywhere fine books are sold, and pick up an autographed copy by visiting filmpreservationsociety.org. And while you're there, take in the incredible work the society is doing, and please consider making a donation. 100% of every gift goes toward their ongoing preservation and restoration efforts. And keep up with the Society's latest projects on their Facebook page at, at Film Preservation Society, all linked in the show notes. And join us next week, Friday, May 28th, and we'll be joined by the makeup and prosthetics designer for Mrs. Doubtfire, the musical, Tommy Kurzman. Tommy's makeup, prosthetics, hair, and wig design skills have contributed to over a dozen Broadway shows, including My Fair Lady, The King and I, and Fiddler on the Roof. With quarantine winding down, Mrs. Doubtfire begins previewing in October in New York and officially opens on Broadway December 5th. Prosthetics are especially critical in telling this story, and we're excited to learn about Tommy's work. So join us next Friday, May 29th. And be sure to visit our YouTube channel to see our latest episode of In the Mix for the Bay Street Bistro celebrating the anniversary of the premiere of Braveheart at the Seattle International Film Festival in 1996. We'll be mixing up the Braveheart cocktail little scotch, lemon juice, ginger liqueur, honey syrup, and bitters in honor of the Mel Gibson epic. Sounds like a pretty good Scottish drink. Tune in for the recipe and plenty of tart clad trivia. And remember, Heilman and Haber can now be heard every week. You can find us on Amazon Podcast, YouTube, Amazon Audible, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And if you enjoy the show, make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend and everyone in your carpool. We'd love to hear from you, so please join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter and email us with thoughts and comments at heilmanandhaber at gmail.com. And until the footlights come up again, it's in sight. Get those shots. Wear those masks. Thank you for supporting local theater and joining us on Heilman and Haver.